If you are sick of oppressive religious systems, but are not willing to let go of faith altogether, this podcast is for you. In this show, we hear from inspirational people tackling real issues of faith that actually matter in this world. Welcome to Jesus Never Ran. The church is wrong to argue that the Bible justifies any sort of discrimination, oppression, marginalization of those who are not straight. Well, the reason why you ain't got no black folks in your congregation is because we don't show up to places where we're not welcome, and we know we're not welcome based off the conversations you demand that we don't have because of the questions you insist on us not asking because of the answers you don't want to live. And the idea that the best being in the universe can't come up with a better solution to the problems of the universe than to torture people forever, eternally, you just start thinking, if that's as good as God is, this is a pretty depressing universe. Hey, before we get going, a couple of words from our sponsors, Rise Nutrition. You can find them at Rise Menominee on Facebook. That's Rise with a Z. And they're all about a healthier, happier life. So let their wellness coaches give you the personal support to help you achieve your wellness goals. After all, that is their mission. And here's the thing, just for Jesus Never Ran listeners, if you go to their Facebook page, you can message them and get a free wellness profile. That's a 20-minute phone conversation, absolutely free for Jesus Never Ran listeners. So check them out today. Also, Infinity Beverages at www.infinitybeverages.com. They will deliver anything you need right to your door. And don't forget that Thursday is buy one, get one for club members if you're in the Eau Claire, Wisconsin area. That's Infinity Beverages at www.infinitybeverages.com. I am so excited to have just an absolute powerhouse on the show this week and next week. Xavier Ramey is a speaker, consultant, and a social strategist. He is the founder of Justice Informed, which is a social impact consulting firm out of Chicago, Illinois. I first heard of him on a podcast I was listening to and then saw him in a TED Talk and am honored and excited to have him on Jesus Never Ran. So let me introduce to you Mr. Xavier Ramey. So my name is Xavier Ramey. I'm Chief Executive Officer of a social impact consulting firm based in Chicago, Illinois. It is called Justice Informed. Uh, We work across many, many areas. Uh, One that we are most known for, uh, many people would call diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, And so that's how workplace culture and policies specifically create opportunities and equity for those people who hold either marginalized or minoritized identities. We also focus on uh, philanthropy, which is, you know, in layman's terms, I call philanthropy the economic relationship between the haves and the have-nots, which more accurately would be the pirates and those people who get funding from pillage. But we work to reorganize philanthropy. Uh, We're looking to create these types of economic relationships that, again, center the needs, the experiences, and the realities and the histories of those who hold marginalized or minoritized identities. Um, Those are people who are uh, women, people who are LGBTQIA, people who are African-American, people who are immigrants or refugees or asylum seekers, people who are indigenous, these types of folks who basically everyone outside of the white, male, Christian, heterosexual, cisgender group has been living in such a way to assimilate into what has been called a diverse culture. It's a diverse country that is segregated. And so through philanthropy, which is the the most 
typical relationship that many people who are white have with people who are not. We seek to turn that, that conversation around and to turn those uh, levers of change around. We also work in community engagements. We work with a ton of nonprofits. Uh, we might do diversity, equity, inclusion work with nonprofits, but we also work with them on their strategies. Uh, we work with them to think about their programming and think about uh, their service models and think about their financial models and reorganize those, again, in ways that are informed by justice, which is to say, what does the world actually need versus what are you trying to do? And those are very different questions to ask oneself. What are you trying to do doesn't always serve the world. I always like to get a little bit of my guest's backstory because it really helps all of us to understand where this passion that they're bringing into the world, where it all comes from. You know, I got into this work because uh, I was I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how I happened. You know, I'm an African-American man growing up in Chicago, and I know that a lot of people, when they hear those two things, African-American male and Chicago, whole lot of ideas come into their heads around guns and gangs and violence and uh, all of this kind of stuff. I challenge everyone to uh, not believe yourself until you actually sit down and have a conversation with us. Uh, in the same way that I've had to learn that with many white evangelicals and uh, many white Christians, I've, it, it, I had to sit down and be relational with people, uh, to listen to them, to consider the context of a history and a response to their conditions that I didn't understand. I was trying to figure out how I grew up in the hood. How did the hood happen? Right? That's the first question you got to ask. Like, why is it a hood? Why is my neighborhood not a neighborhood? Everybody keeps calling it just a hood as if there's not neighbors here. Right? <laughs> uh, like, what, what, what happened there that this is where we're at? <laughs> um, secondly, why, is my, why are we poor even though we work our butts off? Um, you know, they always said hard work pays off in America. And I think that's a bunch of crap. If hard work was what it was, how you get ahead in America, most of the maids would be rich. Hard work is not what gets you to prosperity in America. You can work a full time job and be dirt poor in America. And so I was trying to figure that out. But I was also, you know, struggling with the, the weight of the question. Why was everyone around me poor, too? And as I started to engage that question through my education, uh, through my parents, uh, my mom was a, I mean, we basically just grew up in a library, man. We just, <laughs> my mom just had books, 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 every room, everywhere. We had them in milk crates. We had them on the walls. We had them in the floors. We had them under the beds. So I just grew up reading, reading, reading. But unlike a lot of folks that I've engaged in life, my parents insisted not just on a singular type of education. They insisted on a diversity of uh, sources. And so I grew up reading all the books that I was required to in school. You know, you got a ninth grade, you got to read the Odyssey, right? Uh, you know, you get to certain points and it's like, oh, well, you know, we got to read um, uh, Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky, if you get there. Basically, like, let's memorize what a bunch of white guys wrote. And that's how you'll get graded. And if we have some time, we'll get to some black and brown authors and maybe we'll throw in a woman. But if they are a woman, they're probably going to be white. And I didn't, I didn't see that when I was growing up. Like, I didn't see that all I was being fed and evaluated on was how I understood what white people had created and produced as if that was the only way and the only evidence of production in the world, uh, whether it be through literature or mathematics or philosophy. You know, you got to study Aristotle. Name two African philosophers. Are there none? <laughs> right? Like, you know, we have to study the Germanic traditions around mathematics. Do you really think that the Arabs did not have math? Look at their buildings. 
like, like, come on, y'all. Like, let's think about this. So my mom was really cool because she insisted on showing me different ways that different people envisioned the world and sometimes got to the same point. They still built their buildings, but they used different techniques. They still wrote books, but they wrote them about different things, about the context of their lives and their lived experiences as people of color. And um, when I went to school, they didn't give me that. And so, um, you know, my mom also wanted me to have an understanding that, you know, being black is an act of political resistance in this country. And so at the same time that I had to read books by white authors, she made sure that I read books by black authors, not just black authors writing about like kids stuff. Um, and I want to say kids stuff, I mean, like um, things that are fanciful. But she had me reading about things that were horrible, things about my history, things about my country. And she didn't mince her words. You know, we were reading H. Rap Brown. I don't know if you've ever heard of H. Rap Brown, but, you know, he wrote a, a book called Die Inward Die. And, uh, you know, Stokely Carmichael, one of the most prominent writers of the Black Panther movement uh, and what it meant to think about solidarity and sovereignty as a people within a nation that has not respected or represented you since the first day your people stepped foot on stolen land in 1619. And so, you know, some people can call that indoctrination. Uh, some people can call that learning the whole story. Uh, I believe that I learned the whole story and that's why I don't feel uncomfortable talking about race today. Like a lot of folks I know, um, I don't feel offended when people bring up their histories because I've dealt with many histories. Um, I don't feel fragile or as if I'm being attacked when people confront me with uh, elements of my own people's history or present. Uh, I know that they sit within a context and that's because I've got practice. And at the core of a lot of people's issues right now is they showed up to a game and they haven't practiced. And now they're afraid because they see the face of their competition and they see that the goal is further away than they thought. That goal could be racial harmony. <laughs> um, and they don't know how to get there. And nobody ever taught them. And they don't know what to do. Such great perspective. Because here's the thing. What I've been noticing around issues of race specifically, but I'll add in their issues of politics as well, is the conversations that are going on are conversations surrounding what is best for me or what makes me comfortable. And those are things that just get in the way of progress. When you grow up in the hood, everybody tells you the best thing you can ever do is leave. Um, leave your people. They're not worth being around. Leave these homes. They're not worth buying. Leave these streets. They're not safe. Leave, leave, leave. Exodus is the only way to Genesis. Exodus, Exodus, Exodus. Leave, leave, leave. There is no value in these people. You know, what good can come from Nazareth? That was what I thought. That's what I've been told. <laughs> That's what I've been taught. Everybody that I saw that was having a good time had already left. <laughs> so I was like, time to go. And I was a little smart and I was in college and I was like, I'm going to get a job working in finance and trade. I'm going to make as much money as I can and I'm going to get my family out the hood. And I always like to add this one part. Anyone who has a minoritized identity, you, you can put a goal in front of them and then there's this comma. But I'm black. I wanted to be the CEO, but I was a woman. I wanted to go to the moon and be an astronaut, but 
I was gay. I wanted to be president of the United States, but I was indigenous. And that comma, but, insert identity part, is essentially the context for understanding the obstacles and the challenges that you specifically face because of the systemized nature of injustice against that identity marker. Uh, women don't have the same challenges that I have as a man. Uh, white people don't have the same challenges that I have as a black man. You know, the three different types of people here in America, the uh, immigrants, the indigenous, and people like myself, the imported, uh, the people who came here because of the value of their bodies, uh, not because of the promise of a land of opportunity. Uh, we have very different experiences. And you can set the same American dream or goal in front of us, and you still got to have that comma moment. But I was black. Uh, I wanted to go into finance and make a lot of money. But when I got there, I had to deal with a bunch of white guys' questions about, you know, this, the, the size of my genitalia and the questions about the hood and all these microaggressive, disgusting conversations they wanted to have and the little fetishes they had about black women that they would never talk to their wives about. And, and I had to deal with all of that because I was the only African-American working there. And while everybody's saying, oh, that's a diversity guy. Yeah, that's the, <laughs> he's not qualified. It's the quota thing. Like, you're just dealing with this crap the whole time while you're qualified and um, you still have to deal with what you deal with when you go home you know I wanted to just focus on work but I'm black and my father was sick for many reasons because he was black too and we buried him that year I wanted to have a good relationship with my dad but I'm black and he was an entrepreneur but nobody would recognize and validate his contracts and he couldn't fight it in court Meanwhile, half of white America sitting up there talking about the police are great. And if you don't agree with them, just fight it in court. But you need money to do that. We're not funding the, the public defender's office very well. Their caseload doesn't allow for justice in America. So that nice little conversation about just comply doesn't make any sense in the face of the poverty that our country insists on. So I would fight it in court, but I'm black. If anybody wants to know if systemic racism is real in America, we just need to spend some time listening. We need to spend less time talking and more time listening. Because every time I sit down with a person of color and just listen to their story, it becomes more and more obvious the depths, not whether systemic racism is real or not, but what becomes obvious are the depths of it. And unfortunately, the conversation too often in our culture becomes around if individuals are racist. I hear so many times people saying, well, I'm not racist. Well, that's great, but that's not really the crux of the issue. We're really talking about two separate things here. We have individual racism and we have systemic racism. And our current reality is a systemic problem. And that's much larger and way more overwhelming. There are a lot of questions that one would have to ask themselves and be willing to answer honestly before even considering whether you'll accept that racism is not just an individual act. One, you'd have to ask yourself the question, am I connected to the people around me? 
That's that's like level one. Am I connected to the people around me and be as specific as possible? Am I connected economically? If there are people who are homeless in my in my city, do I have does anything about my life have to do with that? Or are they just homeless? That's not, that's just what it is. Right. If it's about individual actions, then that person's homeless for some reason of their own design. Well, then why is it that over half of people who are homeless have been found to have become homeless because of health issues? Been kicked out of the house. For youth, homelessness, the number one reason for homelessness for youth is abuse in the home and even more so abuse that was related to their sexual identity as being LGBTQ. Does, does your life have anything to do with that? Anything to do with that? Uh, that's question one. You have to ask yourself, do you accept that you are connected to other people? Secondly, you have to reckon with, is it important that I understand the role of history in how it has created the current situation? That's two. Does history matter? Number three, does it matter what a person individually has in the form of willpower to fight against what history has presented to them that history has not presented to me? So if, for instance, uh, yesterday was the first day in American history, literally yesterday, July 28th, 2020, was the first day in American history where an African-American man's body lied in state in our nation's capital. Now, how many African-Americans have powerfully contributed to this nation? Countless. How many have ever been honored to lie in state in Congress? One. When did it happen? Yesterday. Does that matter? From 1776 to present, it's always been possible for a white man to do that. It has never been possible for a black man to do it until yesterday. Does that matter? Does anything about your, a person's understanding of racism affect that? <laughs> Two months ago was the first time in American history where a person who was LGBTQ could not be fired just because they were LGBTQ. Two months ago. First time in American history. Now, a lot of people probably thought that was already the law. They probably thought that was workplace law. Well, of course, of course, they got the right to marry. Yeah, but they don't have the right to work. <laughs> you got to do a little bit more homework. You haven't practiced. You got to do a little bit more homework. So again, as a straight guy who's not LGBTQ, I don't think about that stuff unless I force myself to think about that stuff. So does that matter that history gave a gay person a different inheritance than history gave me in a land of quote unquote opportunity? So you got to think about that before you jump into this. Well, I didn't have on a Klan hood, so it wasn't racist. Or I, I didn't shout at the, the gay person, so that wasn't homophobic. It doesn't matter. Systemic injustice is about the nature of our relationships, not the nature of your individual action. It is not about what you are doing. It is about what we have inherited. And whether you are willing to step into the differences of our inheritances and the effect on our now individual lives because of what we individually receive 
from what history has, has created and what the present situation has not resolved. And that is the space where a lot of people, I think, get lost on the racial injustice conference because they're like, you know, that was the past. That was a long time ago. That was this. That was that. And it's like, OK, well, then let me just let's just say let's take everything from you right now. You don't fight. And then two generations from now, when your kids are still poor, let's just tell them that was a long time ago. What we did to your grandfather shouldn't matter, even though they grew up with you and you've been traumatized ever since we took your stuff. And that does matter. <laughs> But imagine if we just spent our whole time just telling the kids, oh, that was a long time ago, even though you're still alive dealing with the pillage. Man, Xavier just has a way of saying things in a way that make it clear, like make it clear without a doubt. And I appreciate that he doesn't beat around the bush. He just gets right to the heart of it. And he's not afraid to go there and go there strong because that's really what we need in our world today. If you never had the opportunity to listen to the podcast I did a number of months ago with Soon Chan Ra, check that out because there's a time in there where he tells a story about a person and they were challenged to ask themselves, well, think about everything that's around you and how many of those things look just like you. So think about the television shows that you watch, the books you read, the podcasts you listen to. How many of those people have a central figure that is a person of color. And I did that exercise and I realized that I have some work to do. And even earlier in this podcast, when Xavier's talking about the books that he read when he was growing up, I mean, a lot of the people that he mentioned are people that I've never heard of before. So we've got some work to do. I've got some work to do. I can't speak for you. I know I've got some work to do. But what I find is that as we do this work, if you're brave enough to do it, as we do this work and we allow it to unfold and we create the relationships that Xavier talks about, it costs you something. I know we wish it didn't, but it does. We are not that far advanced in our society that moving in this direction of coming against racial injustice and systemic racism, we're not so far in our culture that it's not going to cost you something to move in the right direction. However, the longer we wait, the more it's going to cost our brothers and sisters of color. How much does it cost us for you to believe something that's always been true? That's at the core of it. And that's why the core of racial injustice is perpetuated for the same reasons that spiritual harm happens. It's because of our centering of our pride and our vanity and insistence to say, in the face of something that has always been true, I choose to doubt. I have the privilege of the doubt. And I would like the benefit of the doubt. And the basis of my doubting is on the fact that I have the right to play the devil's advocate, which is the doubt card. I will advocate for chaos in the face of something that's always been true. I'll advocate for more time. I'll stall it out and say, well, we, we need to get more information. Let's look at it from both sides. Did he comply or not? It, look, it's always been true to black folks are getting beat down by police. What more information do you need? Now, as I read about the life of Jesus, one thing that's very clear to me is that he would go out of his way to speak with and be with people that were outside of his racial circle in order to make a point that God's love is for all of us and that we are all to be united. So it's safe to say that I've been really disheartened by the lack of momentum in our churches, in our circles of faith, surrounding the ugly issue of racism 
in our world today? I, I think it's fairly impossible that God is not calling more people to fight for racial justice in America than are the people who are saying, this isn't my fight. And so the folks, the pastors who didn't show at the rallies, the question I would have is, were they even asking God if they should be there? Were they even putting it in their prayers? But the challenge of putting it in your prayers doesn't mean that you'll have a revelation about where your work should be. So if you hear a cry out from the poor, the black are the poor in this country. There are poor white folks as well. There are poor Latino folks here as well. There's a lot of poor folks. When you look at the racial uh, proportions, it's a lot of poor black folks relative to how many black folks there are. And so when you hear, now let's, let's strip it of the carnal language, strip it of black, strip it of white, strip it of race, and say, when you hear the poor cry out in the streets, is any of your church supposed to be in any part of that work? When you hear the poor cry out, when you hear the, 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 the people who are in prison, let's go back to the Beatitudes. When you hear the call of the prisoner, do you stand with Caesar and say, respect your sentence? Or do you say, we must minister, we must understand. And we must free and liberate, not just the souls of people, but the need for the bars. Is anything about your pastorhood supposed to be about that? If it is about the cry of the poor, and the only poor you listen to as a pastor are, are the white people who are poor, in a diversified country, as you talk about the importance of diversity, then I would have some questions about your ministry. I would have some questions about the conversations because I know for a fact on my own life, I hide things from God in my prayers stupidly. I try to act like there are certain things that, you know, there are some answers I don't want. And pastors have to be honest about the questions they don't want to ask for the answers they don't want to live because of what it would force in their, their need to guide people who don't want to come, who may be in their church. And so then the question is, what is the value and what is the call of the cross in the life of a pastor in a majority white town in a country that is going up in flames because there are more people here than just those who are white? How can you say, listen to the cries of the poor without looking at what makes them poor? How can you say, go to the prisons without looking at the nature of how violence is produced? How can you hear the cries of the people who are beaten in the streets and flogged by the police and the guards? Or what, I mean, whether you, whether you have to think about it in the, through the lens of like, these are police officers, respect our police, blue lives matter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can, you can imagine why we say we still have to investigate this institution because they were also the ones who walked Christ to the cross. Not only that, gave him the cup of vinegar. Not only that, stabbed him when he was hanging on the cross. Are you telling me that this institution can't be critiqued? Are you telling me that we should never, ever, just not even looking at, I don't care about your personal relationships, your dad's a cop, your brother's a cop, I got cops in my family. That doesn't mean that I shouldn't look at the institution in the same way that many of them would say, I don't care if your friend's a politician, we still need to have accountability for politicians. We still have to look at the institution and you can't start the conversation with, well, their job is hard, they serve a lot of people. 
That's not how you create accountability. You would never accept that for anything else. But you insist that when you want people to maintain systems of violence so that you can hopefully accumulate enough to have to give back one day and call that hopefully blessed. That was incredible. Wow, so much to chew on, so much to think about. And here's the thing, we're not done yet because Xavier's going to be with us next week as well. We're going to hear more about his organization, Justice Informed. We're going to dig in and talk even more about the church and racial injustice. Do not miss next week. For more information on Xavier Ramey, go to XavierRamey.com. I will have a direct link to that in the show notes. And of course, to support this podcast, make sure you subscribe to the show, give it a five-star rating, and write a review. Until next time, keep walking.